Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club, the final Shocktober edition. I was trying to think of a new sound effect I could do, and I couldn't. <laughs> we haven't done a scream like that before. <laughs> whoa, 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 Toho's gonna come after us. <laughs> the true terror, Godzilla. Okay, so... We decided to to take two titans of the Italian horror scene and pitch them together against each other. A death match. (laughs) If you will. To the death. (laughs) Yeah. Bare knuckle boxing. Lucio Fulci versus Dario Argento. As Will has said before, not a big fan of Dario Argento. No, although I think I've come to appreciate him slightly more this week. I used to think that Lucio Fulci, the man who directed Zombie 2, City of the Living Dead, was a crazy hack. Mm-hmm. Like that he didn't know how to make movies. People just liked it because of the gore. I was completely wrong. Mm-hmm. I'd like to say that right off the bat right now. And just to contextualize these two filmmakers, I would say that Dario Argento, with the possible exception of Mario Bava, is the most critically lauded of the mm-hmm. European horror directors. Still making movies today, I'm I'm sad to say. Is he? Yeah. <laughs> Lucio Fulci, you know, for many years dismissed as a hack by most people. And I would say only in the last 10 or 15 years has he had sort of a critical reappraisal. But even then, it's been a tentative critical reappraisal. I wonder when it started that Dario Argento kind of got taken by the academics as the horror filmmaker we're going to talk about and kind of deconstruct. Boy, I don't know. But I mean, I think his stuff got good reviews at the time, though. Like Like stuff like Suspiria. And Bird with the Crystal Plumage got like three stars from Roger Ebert. So So for people that don't know, Dario Argento is kind of from a cinematic family. His brother produces, so does his father. He started as a film critic. And also, who is his daughter? Asia Argento. Yes, a very prominent actress. A land of the dead. Scarlet Diva. <laughs> Other movies. The heart is deceitful above all things. A <laughs> film she directed. Yes, lots of movies. <laughs> and Dario Argento kind of started as, people would call him the Italian Hitchcock. He made a bunch of giallos, a genre that was popularized by Mario Bava with films like The Girl Who Knew Too Much and Blood and Black Lace. How would you define the giallo genre? It's kind of a mystery film. It's a black of killer who kills people and that you don't know his identity. Yeah, basically kind of like a slasher. Yeah. A slasher movie meets a police movie. Procedural. Yeah. With a very specific stylistic elements that you would associate with it. So Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Cat of Nine Tails, and Four Flies on Grey Velvet are kind of uh, Dario Argento's more Hitchcockian trilogy. They're fairly straightforward giallos. They don't have too many weird elements. They start to introduce what would be his preoccupations, which is very stylistic camera moves and a dreamlike logic, where sometimes the stories don't really interconnect. Dreamlike logic. That's the last resort of a scoundrel, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, Lucio Fulci says the same thing as well. By the way, I'm going to use the same defense later on in this episode (laughs) talking about Fulci. I'm just saying, dreamlike logic is great if, like, the movie doesn't make sense and you want to justify it. I remember someone talking about, I think it was Alan Jones, um, the guy who wrote the book on Argento, which is really, really good, Mm. that he was saying that when Argento was a critic, he was really dismissive of things that didn't make any sense and he used the example of francis ford coppola's dracula as like argento wouldn't like it because he's like why does this stuff happen what's going on here what is this mm-hmm. and that seems completely against everything argento's films represent what do you feel about argento are you a fan okay so i was like will a long time ago is i really disliked argento and i think the reason for that are expectations is that when people talk about Dario Argento films, they paint this vivid picture of crazy colors, insane camera moves, mm. violence from end to end. And what you get with a lot of them is you get that stuff, 
but in very small pockets. Yeah, I feel like I came to Argento with a real show-me attitude for a long mm-hmm. time, whereas with somebody like Lucio Fulci, because he's so disreputable, he's easier to sort of discover and yeah. grow fondly towards. Also, with Dario Argento, the last 20 years of his career is, frankly, pathetic. I mean, yeah. he, he makes... I, I've seen a lot of his recent films, like uh, Mother of Tears, Phantom of the Opera... Um, what's that one that just he just did? Giallo. Uh, yeah, Giallo with Adrian Brody. Dracula 3D with Rucker Howard's Dracula. Dracula 3D, I think, is just the pits. I think <laughs> it's just one of the worst movies ever made. And like whatever whatever it was that was good about him, like I had seen um, when I was a teenager, I'd seen Suspiria, and I seen Deep Red on like a shitty print that had turned pink. I think I saw that one too at the Bloor Cinema. No, I saw it a few years earlier at a Fantascope. Oh, and the it was under the title The Hatchet Murder yeah. is when I saw so it. So I, I saw it on a pink print and then about a year ago I saw it the first half of it again at the Carlton, but they were projecting it on, on a DVD, mm-hmm. which was pathetic. So. You left after half an hour. Right? I left after half an hour because it's like, well, God, I mean, not only is it this boring movie again, but now I got to watch it on a on a DVD from like 1999. I remember writing an article long lost at, in the sands of time. Like, I don't even have a copy of it anymore where I kind of trashed Dario Argento. And it was that kind of position in 18 year old takes, which is like, oh, well, people think these movies are good, but they're not. When I was younger, I always made the argument that, well, what's good about Dario Argento is the music and the fact that he was shooting on 35 millimeter. Yes. The minute he went to digital, it all went to shit. Oh, yeah. And he stopped using those color schemes. And also it looked to me kind of like... uh, you know, his movies would have like 10 minutes that are really good, you know, with the camera swooping around, but then just huge stretches of boredom. Well, Mario Bava gets accused of that, too. Even um, scholars of people like Bava, like Tim Lucas, say like Bava is not good at conversations and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and, but he's good at other moments. And the same thing can be applied to Argento. So you rewatch Suspiria for this podcast and your opinion changed a little bit, I gotta right? say, I think Suspiria is a masterpiece. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's just incredible. Like, you know, beginning to end, it's just about perfect. Well, I don't know about that. Well, there's, some, maybe, there's some slogs. It's maybe not perfect. It gets a little slow in the second half, but... Man, but, but Argento, even, like those first 20 minutes of all his films are like But also, masterful. even the slow parts of Suspiria, there's always stuff to look at. Like mm-hmm. the sets are just unbelievable. Yeah. And I also think it benefits from starring Jessica Harper and Alita Valley, uh, who are two pretty good actors. Uh, Jessica Harper plays a young ballerina who goes to this, like, performance boarding school, uh, and Alita Valley from The Third Man plays the kind of uh, campy headmistress. Yeah, and I remember the first time seeing it being a little bit disappointed. wasn't as gory as I thought it was going to be, wasn't as crazy as I thought it was going to be, and I think that what kind of changed my mind when it comes to Argento films is just lowering my expectations and approaching them as the work that they actually are, as opposed to what you're expecting them to be. Mm. Like, as far as Deep Red goes, the giallo that Argento made, he was really inspired by Antonioni and Blow Up. And in fact, it has the same star, David Hemmings. And kind of the same plot. And, and David Hemmings, honestly, yeah. I could take or leave him. He's pretty boring. But I think that if you approach them with those kind of aesthetics, like maybe an, a little bit of Antonioni-esque filmmaking, that you can appreciate it a little <laughs> oh, bit more. Oh, you mean boredom? Yes, that's what I mean. <laughs> I mean boredom. Well, I, I mean, as I said, Suspiria, it, it just has this like incredible intensity to it. And the way he uses colors. Oh, like, so, so crazy. So like, they, go to the, they go to this boarding school and... I don't even know how to describe the way it looks. There are these like pink paneled walls with this like almost Tim Burton-y uh, tiled floor. And then there's another room 
where there's this big golden staircase and the wall looks like blue velvet or something. And he's always doing something interesting with lighting. There will be scenes where background will be black and Jessica Harper's face will be lit with like blue or red or something. A lot of the times Argento is doing really interesting stuff that on the first viewing you don't notice. Like Mm -hmm. in the scene where she arrives at the airport and she starts going out the doors, the music plays in the way the doors open and close. Mm -hmm. Like it's like da-na-na-na and then it'll close and then it'll stop and then it'll open again and the music will play. And you know, the interplay of sound and image in this movie is just incredible. Both of the auteurs we're talking about have very long and fruitful relationships with the composer. For Fulci, it was Fabio Frizzi, and for Argento, it's the band Goblin. The early murder scene in Suspiria, where, you know, the woman is hung. The climax of the film, without any doubt. That's the best scene, oh, I think. Oh my god, like, but the way the music just, like, pounds through it. Mm-hmm. It's just incredible. All right, well, we're throwing laudatory praise on Suspiria, so let's move over to Deep Red and actually say, man... I watched the first 30 minutes of this movie for this podcast, and I've seen this movie, I feel like, half a dozen times. Because I keep approaching it being like, people say this is the best giallo of all time. What am I missing? And I saw the first 30 minutes, and I saw Will at a screening, and I'm like, Will, Will, it's good. I I was wrong. It's good. And And so I was kind of like, well, okay, (laughs) I'll I'll watch it. But listen, it's better than I remembered it. Yes. Um, but man, that hour in the middle, it's a two hour and three minute film in its uncut form. Mm-hmm. Woof, and you feel it. It's pretty slow at times, but you know, the parts that are good are quite good. I mean, there's that famous scene of, you know, Argento's camera roving around this table. Ah, that's great. With the killer's instruments. Although when, when I've badmouthed Argento over the years, I've always thought about that scene, scene as being like, okay, that scene's fun, but it's like, are you going to hang a whole movie on that? <laughs> <laughs> I but, mean, but he does a lot of interesting things with the camera throughout yeah. and with editing. So there's a scene where David Hemmings is playing piano and the scene opens with just the camera swoops into the apartment through the window. And then his camera just keeps cutting back and forth between his fingers on the piano keys, the piano wires and his eyes. I feel that uh, Argento, maybe a little bit more than Fulci, is someone that plays with the form and the kind of um, winkingness of his movies. For example, uh, Deep Red starts with... Uh, David Hemmings talking to his band and he's like you know don't make it so straight make it kind of jazzy and gross Mm -hmm. kind of laying out the entire structure of Deep Red itself right Mm -hmm. from that beginning or as some critic pointed out that almost every murder is telegraphed with something happening to David Hemmings Mm -hmm. like he's in a coffee shop at one point and steam shoots out he's like ah Mm -hmm. which is how someone gets killed later on when they're burned alive in in a pool. I think I've got a theory though for how I would differentiate between Argento and Fulci. With Fulci it feels like the stuff that's bad about his movies and the stuff that's good about his movies it's so complexly intertwined it's Mm. basically the same thing whereas with Argento you've got the good scenes and you've got the bad scenes and the bad scenes are really bad so in Deep Red early on uh, Hemmings plays this investigator and there's this uh woman who's a journalist and they're having this conversation where Hemmings is like ha women they are the weaker sex they're they're fair they're gentle and the woman is like oh really well how about I test you to a challenge of strength and they do this arm wrestling thing and it's so badly acted it's so badly written the, the whole you gotta scenario... watch it in Italian for the real uh... okay but look at their lips they're speaking English <laughs> they are, I know yes. it's dubbed later like there's no excusing it it's just so fucking awful <laughs> See, God, that hey. was when I walked out at the Carlton. Really? Yeah. You're um, like, obviously, men are the superior species. <laughs> yeah. 
I think that a problem with, especially Deep Red, is I've seen it so many times, and I'm like, I don't know what this, like, how did he get here from there? Yeah. Like, it's very confusing in an unnecessary way, which is why I kind of prefer films like uh, Dario Argento's Inferno, mm-hmm. where I don't know if you've seen that no. one, but it's literally dream logic. You're like, nothing makes sense. Anybody can be a killer. There's underwater, like, uh, buildings that characters go on to. They're all lit with colored lighting. I feel that way about his film Opera a little bit. Have you seen that one? Yeah, I really like Opera. Opera is, I guess, famous for the iconic scene where a woman is... uh tied to a chair and the killer has put like pins on her lower eyelid and so she can't close her eyes yeah uh but just the you know he's got this roaming camera throughout the movie it's been too long since i've seen it i I don't know why argento is a filmmaker that i continually return to there's something about his aesthetic that i really want to like them Mm -hmm. and i'm like i like what am i missing that these people have gotten on the first try yeah i don't know i think suspirius yeah great all the way through i don't have to argue suspirius and then the other ones it would be great if they were an hour long you're like i'd prefer the american edit the hatchet murders oh that's another problem that i had with deep red all these years is i think the print that i saw it on it was you know the uh it was a bowdlerized bowdlerized version whatever that word is where all the good stuff was cut out so you didn't see the car run over the guy's head at the Ah, end so good yeah and so let's talk about Lucio Fulci a little bit. How, what was your opinion of Fulci from the get-go? I think I liked him from the beginning. Well, Fulci, I think I'd seen some of his movies before I even really knew who he was. So, like, Zombie, City of the Living Dead, I saw at a screening somewhere. And then eventually I figured out who he was. Fulci is kind of an interesting director in the sense that he has a really long career. For a long time, he was just sort of this, like, kind of for-hire hack, basically. Yeah, he did comedies a lot. And then in the late 60s, he made this movie, Don't Torture a Duckling which was a giallo, which gave him some measure of success. But then in the late 70s, he made an unauthorized sequel to Dawn of the Dead called Zombie 2, Mm -hmm. which was released in the rest of the world as Zombie, which kind of hit new heights of gore. Yeah, so like woman getting her eye stabbed, uh, zombie versus shark. Yeah, and some, some really awful like cannibalism scenes. And the kind of zombie makeup is incredibly gross. Like it's really famous for that poster where it's this zombie with worms in his eyes and it says, we're going to eat you. I was never a big fan of zombie. Oh, I, really? I, yeah. I like it. I had it on DVD and I remember watching it and being like, Hmm, I don't know if this one's for me, but I love the beyond and city of living dead. I think out of his zombie films, city of living dead is my favorite. Yeah. I think the beyond is probably my favorite. But I've heard it said that people don't remember plots, they remember scenes. Yeah. And I think that's particularly true of Lucio Fulci. When I think of The Beyond, so it's ostensibly about a woman who buys a hotel, but unknowingly there's a portal to, like, hell in the basement. Yes. But, you know, the plot, you know, I had to look that up today. Like, it doesn't even make sense. When you watch the scene, it's just this stream of consciousness. But what I remember about The Beyond are the scene where the spiders eat the guy's face the hospital shootout at the end of the zombies and the final shot of, you know, hell basically, which is this really incredible image. I've heard it compared on the film comment podcast this week. They compared it to like wartime atrocities. scenes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cause it's a bunch of naked homeless people laid out across the floor, yeah, but it's a really haunting image. And the thing about Fulci too, is that when I think about him compared to Argento, I think of Argento as kind of a cold director. Yes. While Fulci is like a meaty and chunky director. He loves his dolly moves and he loves his zooms. Yeah. I also like the texture of a Fulci movie. Mm-hmm. So This is getting back to that point about how the good and the bad are uh, inextricable in his films. 
all the zombie makeup or all the gore makeup, oftentimes it looks really fake. But like that scene where the spiders eat the guy's face. The I big mean, fake spiders. Like yeah. there are moments in that scene where it's just like laughable how unconvincing it is. And yet the prosthetics and the rubber and the, the screaming. Dirt, yeah. And the spiders digging in close up and the blood coming out and the music playing. Like it feels like there's a really strong textures to it. And again, like the 35 millimeter photography helps a lot. too. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if it was cheap digital, I don't think it would have the same impact. Yeah. Also, returning to that idea of like dreamlike logic, the fact that the acting is bad in his movies. Yes. And gives it sort of an otherworldly quality to go along with the sort of badness of some of the special effects. And the fact that the plots don't make a lot of sense adds to that, as we said before, dreamlike. Yeah, logic. well, it's kind of, you can't expect things to logically follow each other in mm. a Fulci film, or even specific rules that are going to be followed. Mm. You just have to let yourself go and just imagine that it's a nightmare, right? That yeah. stuff can happen and then other stuff can go completely against everything you've seen before. But lest it seem like we're making him into this Ed Wood figure where it was all unintentional, like, he made some very striking images. He did. I mean, I watched uh, Lizard in a Woman's Skin, a giallo that he made uh, before he did his kind of gore films, uh, zombie uh, afterwards. And the thing about Lizard in a Woman's Skin, it, it's super um, hallucinogenic in the way that it's constructed. And there's kind of a mastery of editing, music, that you don't usually associate with later period Fulci when he's really going for the gore and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And it's a film also that is famous for uh, Carlo Rambaldi, the guy who did the effects on E.T., did a bisected dog in the film mm -hmm. that appears in a dream sequence. And Fulci actually had to go to court to prove that that was not a real dog <laughs> that had appeared on screen. The music in the movies by Fabio Frizzi, it has this really interesting relationship to the images. It It's this kind of like pounding some would say dated but really aggressive synth music that sometimes like it sometimes it seems from a different universe so there's a scene in the beyond where the protagonist uh, there's this bathtub that she's draining you know with like soggy water and as the water goes down it's slowly you realize there's a body in there and you realize there's a body there for about 20 seconds before all the water goes but then she looks at it, and then the music goes, dur, 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 and the body gets up. And it's like, wait, was the music is indicating this was supposed to be a surprise. It's not a surprise anymore. Well, I think the way the music is uh, kind of integrated in Argento's and Fulci's films is very fascinating in the way that they are literal needle drops. Yeah. Like, they're not always brought in in a way that feels organic. It's sometimes yeah. like, this is the music of the film! Yeah. Especially in films like Dario Argento's opera. Where if you remember correctly that any murder scene starts and it feels like Argento drops a needle on whatever heavy metal record that he has laying around. It's like, da -na 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 -na, as it happens. Oh, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that City of the Living Dead includes a scene where a woman throws up all of her organs. Well, I think that City of the Living Dead is my favorite because it has Christopher George from the Pieces movie, mm -hmm. um, the famous slasher from Spain. I love Pieces. You don't uh, have to go to Texas for a chainsaw massacre. And I think that that's the one that uh, I don't know why I like it more than the beyond. I find it a little bit more nightmarish in the way things are presented mm -hmm. and the way people are kind of trying to fight against the situation. Mm -hmm. Do you think, though, that after this kind of block of gore films that he made after Zombie, Fulci kind of started losing his way a little bit? Well, I think it's just amazing looking at his career. Like, it's such a long career and he did, you know, he did sci-fi films, he did comedies, he did like softcore erotica. But basically, I I'm just going to like read the list of like... This is the important period. It's from 1979 to 1982. Zombie, City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, House by the Cemetery, The Black Cat, 
the New York Ripper, Manhattan Baby. That's yeah. basically the golden era. And then after that... He actually got sick. Yeah, he had hepatitis, he had diabetes. Diabetes, and he was, like, hospitalized for a year, which led to some movies like... Um, Zombie 3, which he supposedly directed a few scenes of, and then he had to pull himself away from. And was replaced by uh, Bruno Mattai. <laughs> the worst Italian filmmaker of all time. Yeah, nobody is making any claims for him. <laughs> no. Where's that episode? The Bruno Mattai episode. Although I gotta tell you, I kind of like Bruno Mattai. <laughs> no, you don't. What Bruno Mattai movie do you like? Hell of the Living Dead. Oh, the movie is awful. Oh, come on. Wait, is that like zombie? And it's not- I'm not I'm not claiming it as an actual good movie. I, mean, I, I mean, just think it's fun to watch. Hell of the Living Dead is fun if you love like stock slow motion animal footage and literally just the Dawn of the Dead score, which they ripped off and didn't have permission. Listen, I'm not going to make any claims for Bruno, <laughs> Bruno Matai. But yeah, afterwards, Fulci's fans say that he kind of lost the energy. He oh, he, t- like I said, he was sick. Like, But I also think it goes to show you, you know, how fragile what he achieved was. I think it, it involved a certain arrangement of collaborators, a certain amount of energy, a certain set of circumstances. And then after that, it was kind of gone. This week I watched Cat in the Brain from 1990, which is one of his last major works. Lucho Fulci's Eight and a Half, if you will. Yeah, or his Wes Craven's New Nightmare, where he himself stars in it as a director named Lucio Fulci, who has spent his career directing horrifying, uh, scary movies and now finds himself unable to differentiate between reality and fantasy and is constantly haunted by the horrible images he's created. I went into this movie with really high hopes. I thought it was a great premise. I think the movie itself is pretty goddamn bad. It's, it, got, it's got its moments. It's fun for like 10 minutes. And then when you realize, oh man, it's not going to go anything beyond this. It's got one idea that it just keeps repeating. It's got a few good gore scenes. But a lot of them that are stock footage from previous films. Yes. And it's got some It's got some good music by Fabio Frizzi, a lot of which, again, is recycled from previous films. Fulci himself as an actor is just pathetic. <laughs> and... It's really badly shot on like 16 millimeter and it looks kind of grainy and amateurish. There's something that kind of happened in the later periods of Fulci films where he decided to go with that soft focus kind of blown out lighting, which I really don't like. Mm -hmm. I actually watched one of his TV movies he made, House of Clocks, which you could not tell was a TV film considering the amount of violence in it. But what was really interesting about that one is kind of what um, defines Fulci for me, which is that it's one idea. In this case, it's uh, three hooligans break into a house filled with clocks, kill the old timers that live there, and then the clocks start turning back, and then like time starts going backwards, so like the old timers come to life, and then the people that the old timers kill come back as zombies for some reason. Is that it's one idea that follows no logical pathway and is never really developed as much as you want. That's what like a Fulci film is for me a lot of the times. But hey, let's bring these two great auteurs together. Head to head. Because uh, just before Fulci died in 1996, and by the way, he died, he died a very sad death. Broke, alone. Broke alone. They kicked him out of his house. Yeah, but he was on the verge, some say, of a comeback. Probably not. Probably, no, I don't pro- think so. Probably would have been terrible, but... I mean, the comeback <laughs> film that he had written, Wax Max, was... Uh, <laughs> sorry, Wax Mask. Not to be confused with Black Mask, the classic Jet Li film, <laughs> um, or Black Mask 2, City of Masks. Yeah, I love that one. <laughs> was going to be his big comeback picture that Argento was going to produce and Fulci was going to write and direct. It got taken over by Sergio Stivaletti, a special effects guy, and it came out. No one cared. No one talks about it right now. And what ended up happening was Fulci, like you said, just died alone. But Argento and Fulci got together and they kind of... Was they buried the hatchet. Fulci was famous for kind of slagging on Argento throughout his career, saying his movies weren't good. Which takes great big balls, but is also punching upwards, if you yes. will, because Argento was always kind of Italian cinema royalty, while Fulci never had that honor. Towards the end of his life, 
uh, Fulci was quoted as saying, when I was a younger man, the critics said my art was shit. Now they say my shit is art. (laughs) But there's a bit of a happy ending or a silver lining to Fulci's death, which is that shortly before he died, he went to this Fangoria convention in New York and was very surprised and touched that his films had such a huge fan following in the U.S. That's something that, you know, warms the cockles. There's no Ed Wood style story of him dying in a bedroom alone being like, I'm having a heart attack. (laughs) I never get tired of that story. (laughs) So if you had to pit them head to head, Argento versus Fulci, which one do you prefer? I prefer Fulci. Yeah, me too. Having said that, I'm not going to say Fulci's better. No. uh, Because I think there are huge swaths of Fulci's career that just aren't interesting. And I also think something like Suspiria or the best moments of the good Argento movies are better than anything Fulci did. However, on balance overall, I like the particular flavor that Fulci gives. I mean, Fulci is much more visceral than Argento is in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And that's why I kind of prefer his films. Mm -hmm. Like I would say that the perfect litmus test is if you took someone and you said, all right, we're going to watch Suspiria and we're going to watch The Beyond. Tell me which one you find more horrifying to like, I don't know, someone who's never seen these films. Mm -hmm. I bet you The Beyond would have more of a reaction than Suspiria would. I think that Suspiria is a little bit, I mean, in terms of uh, being horrifying, Suspiria, I think, is inarguably better than The Beyond. But uh, Suspiria is very deliberate seeming. Mm -hmm. Like you can can tell that, oh, everything was storyboarded here. I can really feel the authorial presence throughout. Whereas the Beyond feels a little more organic somehow. Gross, if you will. (laughs) But I mean, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the main negative label that's put on both Argento and Fulci, which is a misogyny that their films kind of... I don't know, entertain? Yeah, uh, Fulci's The New York Ripper, which I... Oh, boy! I mean, I enjoy that film, but it's... It's crazy. It's it's a pretty ugly film. Uh, You know, a lot of of women being killed in awful ways. And Uh, the thing about Argento movies, too, is that it's not only women being murdered over and over again, mm -hmm. they're often the murderers as well. Yeah, and there's a bit of a... Deep Red has a little bit of homophobic stuff in it as well. Oh, yeah. But I think that he tried to combat that with... His kind of like retort film, which is Tenebrae, yeah. which is about a horror filmmaker making horror films that people mm-hmm. keep calling misogynist. And that there's actually a dream sequence in the film that stars a, um, a trans woman. Mm. So and like the film never makes a point of that. That was just subtext that Argento himself put in there. I also feel like Argento inherited this a bit from his hero, Alfred Hitchcock. Mm. Uh, you know, Hitchcock loves, you know, showing blonde, beautiful women getting stabbed. Right. It's problematic. But Fulci also had problems with dealing with women on his sets, supposedly, on his movies. He was not a nice man to work with as a director. Oh, interesting. And that people supposedly, a lot of people hated working with him. He was a a big yeller. Yeah, a real old school kind of guy. Exactly, yeah. All right, so what are we doing next week, Will? Uh, Kelly Reichardt. Yes. Oh, man, is that how you say your name? Kelly Reichardt? Is it? I don't know. We're going to find out next week. (laughs) As you can tell, this is somebody who we're not a huge expert on. But but I've seen a lot of her movies in, you know, when they came out. I don't think I've seen one. Not Wendy and Lucy. Not uh, Night Moves. Nope. uh, Neek's Cutoff. Nope. Yeah, I I like them very much, uh, but I don't know what we're going to say about them. But (laughs) that's why you got to tune in. Yeah, but I'm excited. Let's discover this. All right. So remember, you can go online and rate us on iTunes. We haven't gotten a review in so long. Oh, yeah. We need a new review. If we were like in the desert and we had (laughs) needed reviews to live, we'd be like charred skeletons by this point. (laughs) And rate us five stars on iTunes. We've got a lot of nerve asking for reviews after we couldn't, didn't even know how to pronounce the name of our next next subject well that's why we come with that kind of innocence right 
innocence. Uh, for the important cinema club, <laughs> I was Will Sloan. My name's Justin McClue. Thanks for listening. Today's Halloween, and that means that we're going to watch movies that are Halloween-related. Do you have any, like... not go out. No, no. That would mean having to interact with people, and the only interactions I need are one-sided. Me and that silver screen. (laughs) (laughs) I could talk to them, but they never talk back to me. Um, Unless it's a nightmarish Purple Rose of Cairo situation. Oh, my God. Especially at Halloween, like, Frankenstein's monster comes out of the screen. I assume to strangle me and throw children in the lake. Now, that's spooky. (laughs) And um, is there any movies around this time that you watch, like, regularly? Not really. I mean, I'm old enough now that, like, if I watch movies annually, uh, I've, like, pretty much burned them out. Like, uh, when I was younger, I used to watch, like, the Universal Horror movies. Uh, for Halloween, for for some reason, the Universal horror movies like Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein were movies that, like, when I was a kid, sort of shaped my perception of the world. Like, well, not the world, but like the aesthetic of horror. Mm. So you would compare everything from then on out to that. Yeah, basically. I'm probably like the last living kid who grew up on Universal Horror movies. And you said it wasn't your parents that introduced you to that. That was you that kind of gravitated towards those movies? Yeah, pretty much. Well, I think my parents uh, showed me Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein because they thought I would like it. Mm. But uh, I think as a kid, you know, I liked the idea of seeing a horror movie, but real horror movies were much too horrifying for me. My parents didn't have that much of a cinematic voice vocabulary like i can't think of any films specifically in the horror genre that they were like watch this one we really loved this one as a kid except for pet cemetery but my dad would only talk about in the context of it terrifying my sister i would be able to choose any film that i wanted from the 99 cent section at west coast video so that means like the monster squad little monsters which is terrifying because harry mandel pees in someone's um ziploc bag or something making it look like apple juice i was horrified you were gonna say pee just pees in somebody's mouth <laughs> <laughs> I got the X-rated like version. Kelly. <laughs> yeah. Little monster. And the uh, main kid in that, Fred Savage, at one point, because he spends too much time in Monsterland, starts turning into a monster himself. You know what Fred Savage makes me think of? What? Molly, 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 Molly. <laughs> you remember from Goldmember? Is he in Goldmember? Yeah, he's the mole with a mole on his face. <laughs> wow. How careers have sunk when you appear as that character. And Austin Powers keeps going, mole. Anyway. And things that like genuinely terrified me as a kid as well, it would be very rarely horror movies. It would be stuff like like in Who Framed Roger Rabbit when uh, Christopher Lloyd gets run over by the steamroller. And the thing is, like, they don't indicate he's a cartoon till after he's been completely crushed. And he's, like, <laughs> screaming and, like, uh, as the steamroller just turns him to paste. I, I know when I was a kid, I used to be scared by the boxes of movies in the horror section. Mm-hmm. So Nightmare on Elm Street uh, on the back cover has a picture of Freddy Krueger on fire, which horrified me. Uh, Night of the Demons, the front cover of that, and Night of the Demons too with that monster on it yeah there was a big stay in the at my video store of that like her holding the lollipop and like eating it i would love walking into the horror section just looking at these covers that held so much promise i remember being hypnotized by like puppet master three i think and it was like a cowboy puppet master six shooter on the cover and i'm like what what happens in this one who could six shooter be yeah uh as a kid though i think when i was really young uh there were parts of the wizard of oz that scared me Mm. like i'm talking like when i was three or something like that so like the flying monkeys for instance or the great and powerful oz himself was scary to me also, when I was three or four, uh, Batman Returns was an absolutely nightmarish experience <laughs> for me because I loved Batman as a kid, but 
It was a few things in that movie. The opening when the parents throw the penguin's bassinet into the sewer was just an awful, horrifying scenario for me as a kid. Yeah. And there are a lot of scenes in the movie, like there's that part halfway through when the penguin bites someone's nose. <laughs> That's so violent. Oh, oh my teens. God. I remember seeing Nightmare Before Christmas, the uh, Henry Selleck film literally with my ears covered because I was so terrified of what was happening on screen. (laughs) And that's one of my, like, very specific cinematic memories because I remember afterwards running to catch the bus with my dad (laughs) and seeing Nightmare Before Christmas. And, like, it's weird how some moments when you see films, especially when they terrify you, are, like, burn into your mind. Other than that, like, I didn't really watch that many horror films as a kid because my parents wouldn't let me watch them. I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons. Uh, I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies. I remember specifically being so excited for the Halloween special and then March comes out and she's like this is pretty scary so you may and my mom's like we're not watching this and I'm like no and it's not scary at all it's the, they do the Raven by Edgar Allan Poe in that, that first one that terrified me really to, I don't understand what scared me about you know realistically what is there scary about the raven but i think it was homer's reaction to it afterwards because that segment ends with bart going oh what that's not scary that's so dumb Mm -hmm. then it cuts to homer being like and i remember sitting in my dad's uh, living room because at the time my dad lived in a one bedroom apartment and we had to sleep in the bedroom <laughs> and then my dad would move us and just looking out the window for a raven of some kind it's one of those fears that makes no sense oh um i remember in another movie when i was 10 or 11 i saw the worm eaters do you know this movie no ted v ted v mickles rest in peace or yeah produced it and it st- was starring and directed by this guy uh, I forget what his name is. Oh, Herb Robbins, who used to work with uh, Ray Dennis Steckler a lot. But it was this sort of like I got I got it previously viewed on VHS because it looked really weird, and it's about this like old hermit who uh, puts poisonous worms in people's food that turns them into worms. Oh, that sounds terrifying and for a so kid. The, so there are a ton of like close-up shots of like people eating their food and like <laughs> eating worms. Like just, just awful shit. And the movie is like sort of a comedy, but it has this like vibe to it. It feels like something like, like it's a real redneck oddity. And I'm watching it as a 10 year old being like, what the hell is this? Like, <laughs> where did this come from? And it's not following any of the cinematic rules yeah. that like you expect. Like who are the people who made this? And Herb Robbins as this old hermit creeped me out so much. And the movie ends with Herb Robbins. He's been turned into a worm himself. And the last shot is he gets hit by a car. And so it's just him up against the glass sliding down the glass making a ridiculous face it's like green ooze is all over the windshield and that shot like lingered with me for so long like it haunted my dreams <laughs> did it have you seen the movie recently no i haven't seen it since oh really i mean i'm i'm sure that if i saw it now it would not have the same impact on <laughs> that'd be amazing if you watch it now and you were like oh, oh does anything scare you now do movies scare you at all uh i'm a big scaredy cat so like I think that as far as haunting my nightmares, not really, but films just like jump scares make me like have a physical reaction to them. I used to be like that, but I think I'm at the point now where I kind of like know all the tricks. Yeah, so. but I do too. Like I know something is coming, but I can't control it. That I'm like, ah, when something happens. Yeah. But it's not to the point where I'm like, uh, oh my God, I'm laying in bed at night and I'm like, I can't sleep. 
I would say like I, I saw that documentary Tickled earlier this year. Yes. Have you seen it? Like No, I haven't seen it. I know what it's about. But like that to me, like that freaked me out when I watched it. I think I get more scared about things like that than I do <laughs> like horror movies. Like things that have weird conspiracies underneath. Well, or... things that like are real. Yeah. <laughs> Not like you hear... sound like a like a hilarious old man, you're like, it's about reality now, ISIS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, people say things like, Oh, you know, the shining, that movie's so scary. And it's like, well, no, because it's got Jack Nicholson in it. What about something like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer? I mean, even that, it's like, yeah, it's a it's a difficult movie to watch, and it sort of creeps you out. But at the same time, I watch it, I'm like, oh, that's Michael Rooker. And he's, okay, playing, yeah, he's yeah. playing a guy. So really, you're more into the snuff area of horror filmmaking. You're like, Give it to me real. <laughs> that would scare me if I saw a snuff film, yeah. <laughs> uh, but the question I want to ask before we go is, how do you feel about showing like young kids horror stuff? Because on one I hand, I, w- I any... want to be like, yeah, show it to them, because then they'll get like, uh, you know, used to it, as opposed to it, like when you're 12, you see something and it just terrifies you because you've never seen anything like that before. Um, Cannibal I... Holocaust when they're four. Yeah, I, I wouldn't do that. I think, you know, I look back fondly on some of the movies that scared me as a kid. Having said that, I think that kids are too young at a certain age yeah, me for, too. for, you know, really, really young. You wouldn't stuff. show them something like Burial Ground or no. um, New York Ripper. No. <laughs> They're like, you like Donald I, Duck? They can't, they can't process those. Like when I was a kid, uh, my grandpa called me into the other room. We're going really long now. But yeah. I, I think I was four or five and my grandpa called me into the other room to watch the horror classic A Few Good Men with, with Tom Cruise. <laughs> I remember you talking about this before. Did I, yeah. I said this? He said, he said, oh, he should come in here. The Joker, Jack Nicholson is in it. And I'm like, oh boy, the Joker. But it opens with this really brutal beating. Yeah, in the, bed. It, yeah, this guy's beaten to death. And, uh, you know, for a full year afterwards, I was horrified of that. And I think I could have lived without that. I think the thing about horror films is that when a kid knows it's a horror film and is ready for it, they can interpret it in a very specific way and parse it as maybe not being real or a little bit more fantastical. But when it's in the context of like A Few Good Men, when someone's like, come see this movie uh-huh. and you think that it's real life, like this stuff kind of happens, that's when it's truly terrifying. I also think as adults, we lose touch with like what actually scares kids and what doesn't. Yeah. And it can seem very arbitrary at times. Like a worm up against a windshield or Fred Savage turning into a monster. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the true terrors.